You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the 170th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With the last show, we looked at how the Seven Days Battles and McClellan's failed Peninsula campaign in the summer of 1862 represented a turning point in the Civil War. We also talked about Abraham Lincoln's decision to bring Henry Halleck and John Pope east in the summer of 1862. Pope to lead the newly created Army of Virginia, and Halleck to take over the vacant post of General-in-Chief. We want to start off this episode by talking a bit more about John Pope. An English correspondent interviewed Pope in August 1862, several weeks before the Battle of Second Manassas, and left this vivid description, quote, With keen dark eyes and beard and hair black as midnight, General Pope has all the air of a commander. Vain, imprudent, and not proverbially truthful, but shrewd, active, and skilled in the rules of warfare, Pope could be great and little, too. He was clothed with scrupulous neatness, his hair and beard carefully dressed, his cigars exquisite in flavor. He spoke much and rapidly, chiefly of himself, swore roundly at intervals, was petulant at trifles, and certain of success. John Pope was 40 years old when he took command of the Army of Virginia in the summer of 1862. He was born in Kentucky but grew up in Illinois. He graduated from West Point in 1842, and during the war with Mexico, he distinguished himself at the battles of Monterey and Buena Vista, earning brevets for each. After the war, Pope carried out surveys in Minnesota and the Southwest, winning promotion to first lieutenant in 1855. In 1856, he was promoted to captain. By the late 1850s, Pope was known as an expert horseman and a capable soldier. He was also known for his impetuosity and his abrasive personality. When the Civil War began, Pope was commissioned a Brigadier General of Volunteers in June of 1861. He held various district and field commands until February 1862, when he was assigned to command the Union Army of of the Mississippi as a Major General of Volunteers. While leading his small army, his most important accomplishment was the capture of New Madrid and Island No. 10 in March 1862. Pope and his men then joined Western Theater Commander Henry Halleck for Halleck's cautious, 
yet inexorable advance on Corinth, Mississippi, in the wake of the Battle of Shiloh. Despite the slowness of Halleck's advance, the Confederates gave up the place, and Pope could chalk up his share of yet another Union success in the West. Once Abraham Lincoln made his belated decision to create a united army out of the previously disjointed Union forces in northern Virginia, he looked to the West for a commander for that army. Lincoln's eye settled on Pope. Pope had won national reputation for his capture of Island Number 10, and his reputation hadn't been tarnished by the bloody near-debacle at Shiloh, where he hadn't been present. Just as significantly, he was a loyal Republican with well-known views on both abolition and the aggressive prosecution of the war. To cap things off, Pope had known Lincoln before the war and was even a relation, sort of, to the president by marriage, since one of Pope's cousins had married Mary Lincoln's oldest sister. John Pope was summoned to Washington and arrived on June 22nd. Pope arrived in Virginia in June of 1862 to clean up the wreckage of the Shenandoah Valley campaign. During Stonewall Jackson's operations in the valley, all three of the federal armies in northern Virginia had been beaten in some form. Banks at Front Royal and Winchester, Fremont at Cross Keys, and part of McDowell's force under Shields at Port Republic. When Pope arrived in Washington, he met with Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, who explained that he and Lincoln intended to create a new army out of the three Union commands in northern Virginia. This new army would then move towards Gordonsville, a key point on the Virginia Central Railroad, in order to draw pressure away from McClellan's drive on Richmond. Pope's appointment was greeted with more enthusiasm by the northern newspapers than by the soldiers of his new command, to whom he was a total unknown. Pope's leading subordinates were even less excited about his appointment. All three of his corps commanders were his senior in rank, so each justifiably felt slighted, as well as disappointed that he hadn't received Pope's assignment. John C. Fremont felt so strongly about the issue that he requested to be relieved rather than be demoted to corps command under Pope. Fremont's request was granted on June 28th, and he would spend the rest of the war on the sidelines awaiting orders. It should have been Pope's prerogative to appoint Fremont's successor, but Stanton, Stanton preempted him by selecting Franz Siegel to take over command of Fremont's force. At any rate, George McClellan was quite surprised by the creation of the Army of Virginia and by John Pope's appointment to command it, all the more so because he hadn't been consulted by Lincoln or Stanton about either act. Little Mac should have been relieved, though, to learn that a more organized effort was being made in north-central Virginia to give support to his peninsula campaign. Because at that moment, McClellan needed all the aid he could get, since on June 26th, the same day Pope's appointment was officially announced, Robert E. Lee launched an attack at Mechanicsville, north of the, Ch of the Chickahominy. That, of course, was just the first in a relentless series of attacks that Lee would launch against the Army of the Potomac, and so Little Mac, needless to say, would have his hands full for the next week and have little time to brood over Pope's appointment.
John Pope, for his part, was in no rush to hurry to McClellan's aid. He officially assumed command of the Army of Virginia on June 27th, the same day the Battle of Gaines Mill was fought down outside Richmond. Pope's first objective after he assumed command was to begin to concentrate his army, which was strung out along a 60-mile arc from the lower Shenandoah Valley to Fredericksburg on the Rappahannock River. Rather oddly, Pope didn't choose to join his army at once after he assumed its command. Instead, he chose to direct the Army of Virginia from an office at the War Department in Washington. This course, needless to say, did little to increase the confidence of his troops in their new, unknown commander, but Pope's primary concern during his first week in command seems to have been to monitor the progress of McClellan's campaign and not the supervision of his own army. Pope seems to have thought that since he couldn't move his new command down to Richmond quickly enough to aid Little Mac, his best post was at the War Department, where he could closely follow the course of McClellan's battles and give ready counsel to Lincoln, who was spending quite a bit of time at the War Department's telegraph office. Pope was particularly critical of McClellan's decision to retreat south toward the James River, rather than falling back to protect his supply base at White House Landing. Pope pointed out to Lincoln that the retreat to the James would make it possible for Lee to interpose his army between McClellan and Pope, and the Confederate commander would be free to attack in either direction. Pope restated his concerns about Little Mac's retreat to the James when he was called to meet with Lincoln's cabinet on June 28th. Pope's criticism of McClellan became even more intense after Little Mac established his new base at Harrison's Landing on the James on July 2nd. McClellan let it be known that he would renew his campaign as soon as he received heavy reinforcements, and he also felt it was imperative that Pope move south at once to open up a secondary front to the north of Richmond, thereby forcing Lee to divide his attention between the two Union forces. Pope was well aware of McClellan's desires as he penned his rival a lengthy letter on July 4th. After opening with a conciliatory note that, quote, It is my earnest wish to cooperate in the heartiest and most energetic manner with you, end quote, Pope then went on to explain the reasons he couldn't do so. Pope explained that his original intention had been to move south and aid McClellan's operations against Richmond as soon as he was able, but, quote, the occurrences of the last few days have deranged this plan, end quote. After this dig at McClellan's retreat to the James, Pope went on to say that he felt the best he could do successfully was to guard Washington and deny the Confederates easy access to the Shenandoah Valley. In closing, Pope stated bluntly to McClellan, quote, Your position on the James River places the whole of the enemy's force around Richmond between yourself and Washington. Were I to move with my command direct on Richmond, I must fight the whole force of the enemy before I could join you, and at so great a distance from you as to be beyond any assistance from your army. End quote. This situation quickly developed into an impasse as McClellan declined to renew his campaign until he was ready to do so, and Pope declined to do anything more than to have his forces make a token advance to positions they would hold, he said, quote, until some well-defined plan of operations and cooperation can be determined on. 
Lincoln and Stanton also felt the awkwardness of the situation caused by the growing tension between Pope and McClellan, and the president decided to resolve the impasse by appointing a new superior over both men. This is when Lincoln brought in Henry Halleck to serve as general-in-chief. That post had been vacant since March when Lincoln had relieved McClellan of his duties as the Union's top general, but the appointment of a new general-in-chief now would hopefully bring about the creation of some well-defined plan of operations and cooperation between Pope and Little Mac. Or between Pope and some other general, since pretty much the first thing Lincoln did upon Halleck's arrival in Washington was send him down to Harrison's Landing from July 24th to 27th to assess the situation there for himself. Lincoln had made his own visit to Harrison's Landing several weeks earlier, and now he let Halleck know that as the new general-in-chief, Halleck could keep McClellan or not as he pleased. While Halleck must have certainly been aware of the president's unfavorable opinion of McClellan, and Halleck himself seems to have been inclined to replacing Little Mac. Sometime around July 25th, Ambrose Burnside, who was then enjoying the fruits of his victory along the coast of North Carolina, was offered command of the Army of the Potomac. But Burnside had little faith in his ability to successfully take on such a responsibility, and besides that, he was a close friend of McClellan's, so he declined the offer. Halleck, therefore, decided to give McClellan the chance to renew his campaign against Richmond, which, as we said previously on the podcast, Little Mac reluctantly agreed to do. But no sooner had Halleck returned to Washington than McClellan repeated his unrealistic request for heavy reinforcements, and so Halleck, with Lincoln's and Stanton's agreement, issued orders to Little Mac the first week of August, instructing him to withdraw the Army of the Potomac from the peninsula. Halleck's arrival in Washington in late July left John Pope with no excuse to remain in the capital any longer, and he finally joined his troops in the field. Active operations, though, would have to wait, since he also received orders not to undertake offensive operations until McClellan's troops arrived from the peninsula and the junction of the two armies was complete, which it was thought would be mid-August at the latest. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. 
Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And so Pope would bide his time along the Rapidan and Rappahannock rivers until the Army of the Potomac joined him. The inactivity was just as well, for after joining his command in the field, Pope found his army to be in no condition to do much of anything. The army's three corps were each in significant need of refit and resupply. Beyond organizational and logistical difficulties and deficiencies, the army also had morale problems, which needed to be addressed. Pope spent much of his first month in command trying to set a more aggressive tone and inject some fighting spirit into his army. On July 14th, to instill a bolder spirit in his men, Pope issued his most famous order, an order that set the tone for Pope's relationship with his own army and, perhaps more importantly, with the Army of the Potomac. It was addressed to the officers and soldiers of the Army of Virginia, but it might as well have been addressed to George B. McClellan, too. It read, Let us understand each other. I have come to you from the West, where we have always seen the backs of our enemies, from an army whose business it has been to seek the adversary and to beat him when he was found, whose policy has been attack and not defense. In but one instance has the enemy been able to place our Western armies in a defensive attitude. I presume I have been called here to pursue the same system and to lead you against the enemy. It is my purpose to do so, and that speedily. I am sure you long for an opportunity to win the distinction you are capable of achieving. That opportunity I shall endeavor to give you. Meantime, I desire you to dismiss from your minds certain phrases which I am sorry to find so much in vogue amongst you. I hear constantly of taking strong positions and holding them, of lines of retreat, and of bases of supply. Let us discard such ideas. The strongest position a soldier should desire to occupy is one from which he can most easily advance against the enemy. Let us study the probable lines of retreat of our opponents and leave our own to take care of themselves. Let us look before us and not behind. Success and glory are in the advance. Disaster and shame lurk in the rear. Let us act on this understanding, and it is safe to predict that your banners shall be inscribed with many a glorious deed, and that your names will be dear to your countrymen forever. Pope's unfortunate words would follow him doggedly, taunting him for the rest of his life and beyond. But in July 1862, before events still in the future showed that Pope could talk the talk, but not walk the walk, the address resonated with the rank-and-file enlisted men of his army. Unfavorable reaction came mostly from the Army of Virginia's officer corps, since the address had not so much questioned the Eastern soldiers' fighting qualities as it charged their leaders with weakness. More severe was the reaction from McClellan and his cronies in the Army of the Potomac. It took no great insight to see that Pope intended the address as a slap at McClellan. 
The address consciously used phrases that were associated in the summer of 1862 with McClellan's deliberate advance up the peninsula and subsequent retreat to Harrison's Landing. Little Mac must have bristled when he read it, and his loyal friend, Fitzjohn Porter, wrote in a letter on July 17th that Pope, with the address, had proven himself to be, quote, an ass. But if Porter and Little Mac and their cohort saw Pope's address as simply the foolish words of a loudmouth general, they were wrong. Unknown to Porter or McClellan, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, who had become Little Mac's most passionate foe in the Lincoln administration, had much to do with the contents of Pope's address. Moreover, Abraham Lincoln sanctioned it, slap at McClellan and all. Pope, therefore, in issuing it, was merely the bearer of the administration's displeasure with Little Mac. With the failure of McClellan's Peninsula campaign, perceptive onlookers might have sensed the Lincoln administration's determination to change the nature of the war effort in Virginia. In the aftermath of Little Mac's failure at the gates of Richmond, Abraham Lincoln pretty much gave up his earlier hope that a conciliatory or soft war approach might coax supposed Unionists in the Confederacy out of the closet. Senator John Sherman of Ohio wrote to his brother, William Tecumseh Sherman, of a growing sentiment, quote, that we must treat these rebels as bitter enemies to be subdued, conquered, by confiscation, by the employment of their slaves, by terror, energy, rather than by conciliation. Many soldiers on the front lines supported this notion of hard war. Even soldiers in the Army of the Potomac, where their beloved McClellan deplored such attitudes. One prominent advocate of hard war was John Pope. Only days after the aforementioned address to his troops, Pope, with Abraham Lincoln's approval, issued a series of orders authorizing his officers to seize enemy property without compensation, to hold civilians responsible for guerrilla attacks on Union forces, to shoot civilians caught firing on Union soldiers, to expel from occupied territory any civilians who refused to take an oath of allegiance, and to treat them as spies if they returned. Just as Pope's address created an uproar within the Union armies in Virginia, so too did these orders. Enlisted men and lower-ranking officers welcomed them warmly. It was time, they thought, to stop fighting the war with kid gloves on. George McClellan, though, bitterly opposed these steps toward hard war. In response, Little Mac issued his own set of orders to the Army of the Potomac intended to have the opposite effect from that of Pope's. McClellan declared, quote, I will not have this army degenerate into a mob of thieves. We are not engaged in a war of subjugation. This is not a war against populations, but against armed forces. Like the address that preceded them, Pope's orders were seen by many as a function of the general's obnoxious personality. But Pope was no loose cannon. Instead, the orders, approved as they were by Lincoln, signaled a calculated shift in the administration's changing approach to waging the war, a change, ironically, made necessary by McClellan's failure before Richmond. Little Mac knew that, in this instance, Pope was no loose cannon. 
McClellan realized that Pope's orders were nothing less than a personal repudiation of Little Mac's own views by the Lincoln administration. Only two weeks before Pope issued his orders, McClellan had handed Abraham Lincoln the Harrison's Landing Letter, in which Little Mac had clearly spelled out his views on the prosecution of the war. It should not be a war looking to the subjugation of the Southern people, McClellan had declared in his letter. Lincoln had read this extraordinary document in Little Mac's presence and pocketed it without comment. But in Pope's orders, McClellan had the president's response. With Pope's orders and the newly passed Second Confiscation Act, hardly a tenet of what McClellan had advocated in the Harrison's Landing Letter stood unscathed or unchallenged. Little Mac's only consolation came in the fate he almost gleefully anticipated for Pope. After receiving word that Robert E. Lee had turned Stonewall Jackson loose against Pope, McClellan wrote to his wife, saying, quote, I see the Pope bubble is about to be suddenly collapsed, and the paltry young man who wanted to teach me the art of war will, in less than a week, either be in full retreat or badly whipped. He will learn by and by the value of entrenchments, lines of communication and retreat, bases of supply, and etc. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is General John Pope, A Life for the Nation by Peter Cousins. Of this biography, William C. Davis says, No major army commander of the Union has been so much misunderstood and unknown as General John Pope. For over a century, his career has lived in the realm of clichés and apocryphal jokes. Peter Cousins discovers a full man with great strengths and great weaknesses in one of the most important and needed military biographies in a generation. This is certainly Cousin's finest book yet. So, if you're wanting to learn more about John Pope, we, like William C. Davis, will recommend you turn to Peter Cousin's biography of this controversial officer. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this show, we just want to give a quick shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Denise, Kelsey, Craig, and Jeff. Earlier today, we released members episode number 42, The Battle of the Rams, Part the First, in which we set the stage for the Battle of Memphis, which took place in June of 1862. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. part here where uh, McClellan is writing to his wife about Pope. And when I read that, I always picture the, you know, that evil witch in Snow White. <laughs> okay. The, 
was the evil queen that turns into the witch. And I picture McClellan going, I see the Pope <laughs> bubble is about to be suddenly collapsed. <laughs> and the paltry young man who wanted to teach me 